Well, I'd like to read to us now from, from uh, the Bible, from the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Um, put the readings up there. Luke 9, chapter 43, and reading through to the end of that chapter. And then we'll, we'll think about something in this passage again uh, together when I've read that. So Luke chapter 9 and verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't know if many of you remember Reginald Perrin from the 1970s. Martin Clunes revamped it. Uh, a little while ago, but apparently was not a patch on the original, and that shows that someone's really old because you always think the original is better than the uh, the remake. But Reginald Perrin was a bloke who worked a middle uh, middle level sort of executive in a company called Sunshine Desserts. Was absolutely fed up of the rat race. Uh, couldn't stand getting into work late every morning because the trains weren't running properly. And I've been told the trains have run all right this week, which is interesting. But anyway, he. Um, There was always some reason why he was so many minutes late uh, into work. And he wanted to break out of that system. So what Reggie did was he faked his own death. And then uh, he came back uh, ultimately as uh, a supposed long-lost friend of Reggie's, Martin Wellborn. And he came back with a beard and moustache. He'd worked on a pig farm for some time. Kind of like echoes of the parable of the prodigal son in there in some ways, I suppose. Uh, But came back and remarried his wife as Martin Wellborn. And she knew that Martin was actually Reggie, and so did his daughter, but not many other people did. 
Uh, and then uh, that was, takes you through the first series, the start of the second series. He decides he's back now to being Reggie, uh, but just wants to do something that shows that you can break out of the system, that we don't have to take things as they are. And what he did was set up a, a company called Grot. If you ever saw Reggie Perrin, then you'll, you'll remember Grot. He sold useless things, square hoops, round dice, which would obviously never stop and give you uh, a proper reading. He sold his son-in-law's sprout wine. If you enjoy sprouts at Christmas, I, I, I love sprouts. I don't know about making wine out of sprouts, though. Uh, but his, his thought was, we'll just sell ridiculous things to show people that capitalism, the societies we've got it now, is a, is a really poor thing. But what happened was Grot took off and was a huge success. He said, right, this is a square hope, and you've got to pay sort of £20 for it, which was a lot of money back in 76, 77. And, and people bought the square hoop. They bought the round dice. They even bought the sprout wine and other things like that. And his point of saying, well, look, life is just ridiculous, well, it, it kind of became a bit of a success, but in the way that he wasn't expecting it to. So he decided, I'm going to bring my empire down and he went out and found a tramp in the street and got this tramp to be the managing director of Grot, uh, some Irish bloke that he just found outside, a homeless bloke, uh, an alcoholic, and so on. Well, this man made an absolute roaring success of Grot. Everything he was trying to do to bring it down and to just say to people, the way we're living is, is just so stupid, uh, he couldn't. He was there still within the system, uh, and it became a huge and roaring success but he's trying to turn it over. Here's something useless, and I want you to spend all your money on it. And people did. It's a strange way for Reggie to approach things. And you might think that about Jesus. When you see the last few verses uh, in that passage that we've just read, from verse uh, 57 there, as they're walking, I think it's 57, I can't read the small numbers, but I guess you can up there. Yeah, as they're walking along the road, he meets three individuals and talks to them about following him. The first one actually volunteers uh, to follow Jesus. But the way that Jesus speaks to them, you might think, does he really want people to follow him? It, it almost seems like a grot mentality. Make it sound as grotty as possible, and they won't come. I'll follow you, the first one says, wherever you go. There's a real sense there of, uh, of an extensive commitment to Jesus. Wherever you go, whatever it's going to take, I'm willing to follow you. And Jesus looks like he's trying to put the person off. Birds, they've got nests. Foxes, they've got holes in the ground. The son of man, I've got nowhere to lay my head. He says to another man, follow me. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Sounds like there's been a death in the family. I don't think that's actually the situation just at that point. I think if the man had died, you may see on, on the news sometimes when there's uh, a famous death in that part of the world or some tragedy. People get buried the next day. If his father had already died, he would be there sorting out the funeral arrangements already. What he has in mind is his father is old, perhaps, or maybe his father is suffering from a certain illness. And he's saying to Jesus, I need to be there to sort it out. I've got family responsibilities. And, and once all that is handled and we've been able to sort out the, the estate, if there is an estate to sort out, then I'm ready to come. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then to the next person who says, I'll follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. He says, no one, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And those three short sort of cameo little scenes there, you might think, 
Does he really want to build a kingdom? Is he really interested in, in having a following? Does he really want to be famous? In inverted commas, does he want to be successful in this ministry? It looks as though he's trying to say to people, I don't want you to follow me. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, if you do that, you'll have nowhere to rest. You won't have any point of security because birds have got nests, foxes have got holes. I've got nowhere to lay my head. You're always, if you follow me, you're always going to be on the margins. Because to be a success in this world, in the way that things are set up, You've got to have a base. You've got to have a home. You've got to have stability. You've got to have a place where you can operate from. And Jesus is saying, I've got none of those. And the implication is, if you follow me, the same will be true for you. And you won't ever have that sense that you can, you, you can rest secure in this world. I've got nowhere to lay my head. Does he want the man to follow or doesn't he? Follow me. There's going to be an impending death in the family. Yes, and let the dead bury their own dead. It sounds quite insensitive, really, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like the Jesus you would normally expect to be reading about. I think what's happening there is Jesus is saying to him, look, it's about life. There's a great contrast between what comes with the kingdom, the reign of God that this man is being told to go and proclaim, and what he's going to have to go home and, and handle and Jesus is saying to him, it's about this great contrast. Life in this world without Jesus, you can characterize it as living in the land of the dead. And it's time to get with it in the land of the living, Jesus is saying to this man. It's, it's so important that that is grasped and responded to. And the same thing follows in, in that last one there. I will follow you. First, let me just go back and say goodbye to my family. You know, they're going to want to know where I am. A bit like, you know, if you, when you were young and you're playing out, I've just got to tell my mum that I'm not going to be in for tea because she'll wonder where I am. Kind of like that, in a, but in a, in a grown-up adult sense. Look, I've got responsibilities. They need to know why I'm not at home, where I've gone. They're going to be worrying. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus is saying, no. If you go back, if you start looking back, you're not going to be, you're not going to be worthy. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There is a radical change called for, a radical commitment to Jesus that says, I've got to let old things go. They're characterized by, by death and the ways of death. They're not really marked out by life and new relationships. Relationship with him means more than anything. And you can read those and think he's, he's not keen on having people following him because he's setting the bar so high there it's such a, a shocking thing to read. Let the dead bury their own dead. And you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God if you look back, if you want to go home, if you want to handle those old things. You've got to come and you've got to come now. Maybe there are all sorts of arguments you could put up against that. And maybe you've read something like that or had it read like this afternoon and in your mind you're thinking, oh, there's so much about Jesus that makes me want to follow him. But when I read things like that, he's just set the bar too high for me to be able to say, I will become a follower of Jesus. Maybe at times we find in our heart a real sense of, I do want to follow him. A bit like the first one there, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus gives a bit of a reality check, a wake-up call and says, look, this is what it's like. No resting place. Well, he does want followers. He does want us to be those who are in relationship with him. 
He's not trying to put people off. He is wanting us to grasp, though, what it means to follow him, what the costliness of that is. But what I want us to think about really this afternoon is the bit that comes before that in the passage that we read from verse 43 onwards to say to you, look, if you've, if you've seen how costly, how hard, how shocking it is to follow Jesus in those verses, and if in some ways that makes you feel like, well, I do want to, but I, I don't really want to, in terms of what he's saying there, it's too costly, it's too scary, it's too radical. I just want to let the verses before that encourage you to really take seriously that call to follow Jesus. He tells us we must count the cost to see the reality of what he's saying. There isn't going to be a place of restfulness. It does mean a a whole new approach to relationships and loyalties and commitments and so on. But why should you make that commitment? Why should you shift loyalties into following Jesus? Well, three things from the the, the passage that we read that leads up to that point. Three things to encourage us to follow Jesus, to, to consider it really worthwhile following him. First thing comes up uh, a couple of times. First of all, there in verse uh, 43, and then down in verse 51. Down in verse 43, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he's just healed a boy who's possessed by an evil spirit who's thrown to the ground and convulses and so on, and, and Jesus is able to drive it out. And people are amazed and astonished at this. He says to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, they don't understand what it means, we're told in the next verse. It's hidden from them. They can't grasp it, and they're afraid to ask him about it. But Jesus is saying to them, look, this road that we're on, it is leading me to a place of death. The people have all been astonished that he's been able to, to heal this boy. And Jesus is wanting them to know, well, how is it that he's able to bring healing. What does full healing really mean? What is it going to mean for Jesus? He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And down there in verse 51, so there was a couple of places where it came up. Verse 51, we read, at the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's saying to them, I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. People are going to take him, they'll mock him, they'll spit upon him, they'll flog him, they'll they'll cause him untold pains and grief, and they're going to crucify him. Jesus knows that. It's not just that he has an awareness that if I carry on this path, people might want to do bad things to me. I don't want them to do that. I'm going to have to avoid it somehow, but it looks like a collision is going to be inevitable. Now, he is walking deliberately into that which is coming. That's what verse 51 is saying to us. The time is approaching for him to be taken up to heaven. And he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's not going to be deflected. He's not going to be diverted from that. Why should you really take seriously Jesus' call to follow him when it seems to cost so much? When it seems to demand such a a response which is radical in terms of loyalties, commitments, uh, relationships and so on. The first thing is this, the one who calls you is the one who has been prepared and has actually gone all the way down the road that leads to death upon a cross. Jesus calls us to follow him in the light of his commitment to death for us. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And part of him, in a sense, when he's in the garden, 
It quakes before that. If there's some other way, well, well, let it be. Let this cup pass from me. But he's determined to go there for your sake, for my sake. As the time approaches, he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. An older translation has that as his, he set his face like a flint to go towards Jerusalem. It's like you look at Jesus and you think there is nothing going to budge him. He's got his face set. He's got his whole thought set in one particular direction and nothing is going to stop him from doing that. Where is he going? He's going to the deepest of all suffering so that he can rescue us, so that he can deal with all that's wrong inside us, so that he can deal with all that's wrong in this world and one day make a new heavens and a new earth by him going right down to the depths. And the one who has that commitment to you is the one who calls you to follow him. He's going deeper into suffering than ever we would be called to go. Yes, birds, they've got their nests. Foxes, they've got their holes. Jesus says, I've got no resting place. All he's got is a road, a road that endlessly leads him to Jerusalem, where he will endure the most horrific suffering for our sakes. He's the one who says, follow me. The one who suffered to that degree for us. I think that's the first thing to understand about this. He's not saying, well, follow me and I'll then see if you're worthy of me giving my all for you. His call to us to follow him is to be a response to what he's already been willing to do for us and that he did do upon that cross there in Jerusalem. Second thing to notice about this passage to, to help us understand and, and reckon with and respond to his call to discipleship uh, happens when, uh, down there in verse 46, there's an argument among the disciples as to which of them is going to be the greatest. It's, it's so real, isn't it? And what does Jesus do? He's dealing now with a situation where they're thinking, just as most people think in this world. We, we want to make a success of this. Which of us is going to be the greatest? One of us is going to perhaps lead a, a great work under Jesus' leadership and so on. And, and who's going to be the greatest? You know, the call to leave everything and follow him and not to have a home necessarily in that sense, not to have the symbol of stability and security, but to be following someone who is always, in a sense, on the margins, one who's being pushed off uh, by the mainstream of society and to be closely related to him means not to really have, in human terms, anything that, that makes for success as people might see it. Well, how can you respond to that? Well, these verses that follow here say to us, Jesus is just not working in sense within the system. He, he's rewriting the rules completely. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 47, took a little child and made him stand beside him. And then he says to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. If you want in that society to take a symbol of lack of power, lack of prestige, lack of influence, you take a child. And Jesus does that and says, you've got to welcome him and welcome me in doing so. Our thinking is so governed, isn't it, by how things are perceived in this world, and Jesus just turns that on his head. And he's showing us not, it's not about how people understand success, 
and influence and power. What, what is the way in which his rule, his kingdom operates in this world? It's by the most tremendous humility. They're arguing who's going to be the greatest. And what does Jesus say? Whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me. You would welcome someone in that society normally because, you know, you would want to welcome a powerful person. You want to ingratiate yourself with them. You want to be able to say, this guy, this, this really famous person, he's my mate. And I'm standing alongside him and I, in a sense, get some of his reflected glory. Why should I welcome a child? He can't do anything for me. He's got no money. He's got no influence. got no position in society. And Jesus says, you welcome him. In doing that, you welcome me. The rules have been rewritten. The call to discipleship implicitly says you're not necessarily going to get success as it's measured in this world. You may be pushed to the margins. You may be, in that sense, marginalized and and not viewed as as others would uh, want themselves to be viewed and so on. How can you respond to that call to have no resting place? He's not literally saying you won't be able to own a home. I guess most of us have, have got homes or or hopes for homes and so on. But it's going far deeper than that. It's saying no no lasting home, no real resting place within this society. You're not buying into how it works, not playing by its rules. How can you think of doing that? You can think of doing that when you understand his kingdom doesn't work in that way. How do I get success and favor with God? How do I impress him? How do I ensure this relationship with him? It's not built on human standards. Jesus overturns that completely. And it looks like John there in verse 49, he he really feels a little bit ashamed about what's going on. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And Jesus just had a little child come and stand next to him and say, whoever's least among you, he's the greatest. Maybe it's beginning to filter through into John. And he says, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and... We try to stop him because he's not one of us. It's what you have to do in this life generally, isn't it? You have to protect your position. Hang on, you're, you're not one of us, so, so you, you can't do that. We're the ones who are going to get the prestige. We're the ones with the power. We're the ones with a certain authority, and you've got to protect yourself. You've got to push off those who aren't part of your inner circle. And what does Jesus say? Don't stop him. Whoever's not against you is for you. But Jesus, aren't you concerned to protect the reputation that you're building? Aren't you wanting people to know that it's you and your disciples only who are able to to handle this? If you just let it sort of filter off into all sorts of people who might be doing these things, you're going to water down your brand. You know, you're not going to be able to protect your position. And he's not playing by the rules of this world. And he's quite happy to let that go. Can you let things go? that give you a sense of security and worth in terms of how this world is set up, because that's what Jesus, in a sense, is calling us to do, you can when you understand that he's given his life for you and his kingdom does not operate by those standards. You don't impress God by being able to produce evidence of security and success in that way. But then the third thing on this comes out when Jesus is not welcomed in a Samaritan village. Verse 51, as the time approached him to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem and sends messengers ahead who go into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. 
but the people there didn't welcome him because he's heading for Jerusalem. Old uh, hostilities, they, they die hard. Jews and Samaritans, they don't mix. Where is this man going who you want us to, to, to give a welcome to? Uh, well, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Well, he's not stopping here then. Because we don't welcome those who are on their way to Jerusalem. We don't like Jerusalem. We don't like those who live in Jerusalem. Uh, we've got certain hostility against them, so he's not stopping here. Jesus often encountered that kind of thing. But when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? They, they won't have you in. So shall we get rid of them? That They're pushing you away, so shall we just burn them off? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. He doesn't say to them, James and John, I want you behind me. I can see you're as angry about this as me. We're off into that village now, and we're going to sort them out. They've said to him, look, they, they haven't received you. Shall we call fire down from heaven? Because you've given us a certain amount of power and authority, and we've been out doing amazing things. Shall we do it? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. And then they go on to another village. Why is that important in terms of the call to follow Jesus? I think it gives you an insight into the heart of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we're told that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus, in his teaching, said very similar things time and again. And as you look at that call to follow him, if there is in your heart that real sense that I, I'm, I'm drawn to this man who is more than a man, this one who has gone to a cross for me, all my sin, all my guilt, all my shame, all my brokenness, it can all be handled and healed ultimately. And there is a sense of drawing such that you might want to say with that first man, I will follow you wherever I go. And yet you read this and you have in your mind that sense that this is so high. This is so hard. That the dead bury their own dead. A radical new approach. He's offering life. You can't really engage with the old stuff. And it means new relationships. Don't look back. You're not fit for service if you do. And in your heart, you think, I'll never make that. I'm sure there's going to be a look back. Just like some of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they look back to Egypt and they're saying it was better there. And maybe you're thinking, I'm sure there'll come a day where if I set out following him, I'm going to find myself in that place of tension. Because it's so such a high standard, it's such a holy calling it's such a such a radical change what's he going to do with me then when i reach that point where i'm i'm wobbling where there is a tension and where i'm trying to handle that tension but still he sees it and he sees that the motives of my heart are not always what they should be that there is a a, a real sense of struggle going on is jesus at that point going to burn me off Well, this village didn't welcome him. It wasn't interested in taking even the first step on the road of discipleship. Didn't want him there because of those hostilities that they had with people who go to Jerusalem and so on. And Jesus' response when James and John say, shall we call the fire down? It's to rebuke them. If you're ready to take that step of discipleship, committing yourself to Jesus and you're doing so, with a real sense of trepidation because you read verses like this and think it's so hard. 
What's he going to do when I waver along the way? Look at the character of the man. He is determined to rescue. Nothing will put him off going to Jerusalem for your sake. Look at the way he handles his kingdom. doesn't play it by the way the world would play it. doesn't recognize greatness in the way that people would define it for us. He says, whoever's least among you, he's the greatest. And that gives you encouragement. It's, it's a different way of being. There's such a humility in his heart. And when there is failure, when there is that weakness, that sense of tension in terms of following him, is it just judgment you can expect? Although he won't allow the fire to fall on those villages. He's one who is gracious. When he was in the garden, we mentioned earlier about him saying, if there's some way, let this cup pass from me. He said to his disciples, I want you, Peter, James and John, he took with him further into the garden and he said to them, I want you to stay here while I go over there and pray and you pray for me. And maybe you know the story well or maybe you don't, but they fell asleep. It's the dead of night that they've, they've been through such tension in those past days. It's the night on which Jesus is going to be arrested and betrayed and then handed over and flogged and judged and killed and so on. And Jesus goes away and prays and he comes back to them and they've fallen asleep. And it happens more than once. And Jesus, what does he say to them? He says this about them. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, couldn't you just wait with me for one hour? And you might think what's coming next is a, a burn off. You couldn't even just wait one hour. Well, just leave the garden. I'd have thought if you were serious about it, you'd have done it for one hour. One hour, that's all. You haven't got in front of you what I've got in front of me. One hour, one measly hour. You may as well leave now. He doesn't say that. He sees what's in their hearts. The spirit is willing. And the flesh is weak. There's a great understanding there. He's not excusing them. He's not saying, I didn't want you to pray with me for an hour anyway. But he is recognizing the tension and the difficulties. And he stays with them and allows them to stay with him. That's the Jesus who calls us to follow him. It is an in, incredibly intense calling that he sets before us there. It's about life. It's about moving from deadness to life. It's about new relationships. It is about living on the edge in worldly terms. It is about being marginalized in many ways. It is about having no real resting place, no ultimate point of security in, in this world's terms. But the one who calls you has been ready to die for you. He is incredibly humble. He has a different way of operating to this world system. And he's one who doesn't throw away those who experience tension and who falter and who have to handle difficulties as they follow him. But he stays with us all the way.